Indeed, it's sweet to have our hearts prepared to come before the Lord to hear His Word and get to come to this rich passage in Romans chapter 10 on the Gospel and pray your hearts will be encouraged by this truth as much as mine has been. It's just a favorite verse of mine, I think about particularly verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 10 and seeing the simplicity and clarity of the Gospel, so look forward to drawing that out this morning. So we said last week, and the most important question that could be asked is, what is the state of your soul? Do you know that you have eternal life? This is the most important question. To gain eternal life, you need to be righteous. You need to have the righteousness of God. You need to be righteous, otherwise you will not attain eternality. What Paul, or it's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. No one will enter into heaven who is not righteous. No one who can gain eternal life if they are not righteous. Now the question is, how do we gain righteousness? Where do we find it? And there are only two possible paths. The first is keeping of the law perfectly. From the time you enter into the world to the time you pass, you keep the law perfectly. Or, secondly, the path is by faith in Christ. These are the two paths that the scriptures have laid out. The two possible paths to eternal life. And what one should have noticed if they tried to take the first path is how completely incapable they are to do it. They should have seen it immediately. As soon as they started on the path of attaining righteousness by keeping the law, they would have immediately found within themselves a struggle. The law is holy, the law is just and good. The law is unrelenting in its demands. Day, night, seasons of difficulty, seasons of pleasure. No matter where you're at, the law and its righteous demands are following. You can't run from the reach of the law, you can't hide from the reach of the law. It governs the inner man and the outer man. The law makes its righteous demands and is always persistently governing. It is relentless in its standard that it cannot change. It knows no mercy. It doesn't doesn't take a blind eye to any transgression. It is unrelenting in its demands. And anyone trying to keep the law to obtain righteousness To obtain eternal life should come to a point of utter and complete frustration. I can't keep it. I can't do it. I can't live up to it. I think, just on a side note, as parents, as we teach our kids, as we continue to exhort them and encourage them, It almost seems as my own life parenting with each of my kids, they came to a point where they got to a a place where they said, Daddy, I can't do it. I keep failing. 
I don't want to fail, but I keep failing. That is where the law should lead somebody, lead them to the complete end of themselves, a complete inability. But to some, they don't think that that inability keeps them from God. They believe that they could start over and try again. Yeah, I messed up the first 1,500 times, but the next time I'm going to get it. But they keep striving in a kind of self-righteousness to earn favor with God. And Paul is exposing that here in Romans chapter 10 and the complete inability of the natural man to earn favor with God. He cannot. He cannot earn a righteousness. He cannot redefine righteousness. He cannot change God's standard of righteousness, and he can't establish his own standard of righteousness. As far as they say in verse 3 there of Romans 10, for these Jews, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They didn't come under God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own and by that righteousness be pleasing to God and enter into eternal life. A natural man who does not want to submit to God would love a form of righteousness that would be different than God's righteousness. For that form of righteousness is so much easier to practice. The heart of man is proud and is inclined to believe that he could do something that would make himself right before God and that God would be satisfied with those efforts. Just think about how easy it is today to live in self-righteousness. Our culture today is consumed by this pursuit of self-righteousness. I mean, the whole angle of social media is the attempt to put yourself forward for everyone to see whatever little snapshot you want them to see. I mean, you might take a picture, I might take a picture of my perfectly clean desk, and you think, that guy really keeps his office clean. But you won't see everything outside of the frame. The idea in self-righteousness today, with the tools today, the self-righteous person can appear marvelous. I mean, how many times have you seen this in some kind of social media feed? Perfectly clean desk with a Bible perfectly placed right there in the middle of the desk, maybe at an angle, with a notepad sitting there and a nice fountain pen placed on top of that notepad, cup of coffee sitting above it, nice plate of breakfast right there, a warm blanket and the hashtag, great start to the day. <laughs> Look how wonderful my righteousness is. It's, it's shining forth. I'm ready to launch into my day, and I want all the world to see it. In humility, of course. But I'm not exalting myself. But I don't mind if you throw a like on that. Drop a love to me. Oh, the heart is so inclined to live out its righteousness before men. It's easy and glamorous today to to take a picture of our righteous pursuits, but it's certainly harder to privately pray. 
It is harder to privately walk in righteousness before the Lord. It is harder to privately bring our hearts, thoughts, and intentions and desires under the will of God and yield to them. It is much easier to look for the praise of men and to receive those accolades. We even have, have verbiage for it today. We call it the humble brag. The idea that, uh, well, you know, something like this. So humbled that the Lord has made me the number one author of this great book. <laughs> the humble brag of able to exalt oneself while seeming to be righteous, to be humbled by the opportunity. The self-righteous heart is inclined to earn some kind of favor by the performance which it has done. And the person who is consumed by the self-righteousness is actually believing that what they're doing is earning favor with God. They're absolutely believing in their own heart that God is more happy with them than anyone else because of what they have accomplished. They become hardened in their own heart to any kind of personal evaluation from others. They become They've come to a point where they minimize any of their transgressions while magnifying others. Their sins are small, their sins are insignificant, but those other sins out there, those are really bad. Their heart is filled with unbelief because they have got to a point where they believe their righteousness satisfies God. And yet, you can mark this person out very quickly. Because there are qualities about their life they can't hide because they're filled in the flesh. For example, they're filled with anger. Anger at others, hot-tempered, quickly irritable, pushing back on people because they are unwilling to work with anyone else's weaknesses. And maybe you've been frustrated by their own weaknesses and their own temptation, and they just take that frustration out on others around them. They are what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7. They are always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yes, always taking in knowledge, but never able to understand and grasp the spiritual significance of it. And certainly, in the moment of temptation, never taking the divine principle, identifying what the principle means, and using it to overcome evil, they are always learning, but never knowing They are, as Paul said to the Colossians, they have no power over ungodliness in their life, Colossians 2.23. They are unable to resist, driven by impulses and passions and desires. They are like unreasoning animals, driven by one impulse to another. They are, like Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 15, they are unable to appraise spiritual things. They can't identify the things that God is pleased with. They can't identify spiritual principles. They can't identify spiritual truths because they can only talk about religious things but are not driven by the things that God's heart delights in. They bite and devour others, Galatians 5, 15 describes. They tear down others. They want to constantly bring everyone down so that nobody else is more righteous than they are because no one can compete and cast a shadow on their hard work. No one can be better. 
So instead of delighting in the work of God in someone else's life and rejoicing that somebody is striving and then using that as an encouragement to strive themselves, they see it as an opportunity. Now I need to bring you down. You can't rival my righteousness and I will look bad before God and we can't have that happening. So they bite and they devour. And then they are unteachable. When you point out their faults, they are unloving towards others. They wanting the approval of others. They are constantly consumed with a desire for more approval. You need to praise me. You need to lift up my reputation. You need to keep giving me affirmations. You need to keep feeding this desire to affirm my successes. And one other quality of this person that is unavoidable is they are constantly tired. Tired of striving. Tired of working tired of obeying, exhausted in the pursuit of righteousness. Instead of delighting in righteousness because they're a child of God walking in faith, they're trying to earn righteousness and are just constantly at the end of themselves, exhausted in the pursuits. That's self-righteousness. Or the fruits of self-righteousness. Because the one who is trying to earn their place to be pleasing before God constantly finds they cannot do it, cannot reach out, they cannot gain. And Paul's been laying this out here, exposing the self-righteous who in their own hearts are trying to earn a favor. Now turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 30 because I want to show you where Paul grabs from the Old Testament this theme and then builds on it. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Here's what Paul, in Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 14, Paul grabs this theme here and builds on it in Romans chapter 10. But I want you to see the context of this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Deuteronomy is the book of the giving, the re-emphasizing of the law, the re-giving of the law. Moses is restating for Israel all of God's work. Now, catch what God is doing here. Because what God lays out here to Israel, it shows Israel where they're going to head. In essence, he's giving them a picture about what's going to happen in the future in their nation. Notice verse 1. So, it shall be... When all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Stop right there for a second. Look, I'm going to send you out, and all the blessings and curses which I have laid out before you, they're going to come true. The blessing is if you obey the law, you prosper, and you'll you'll grow, but if you disobey the law, you're going to be punished and cursed, and you're going to be spread out to all the nations, and I'm going to banish you. Judgment is going to come if you disobey. He lays it out here, and continue on in verse 2 and following. And you return to the Lord your God, and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you 
and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will, your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. This is exactly what would take place. Israel went out. Israel rebelled against God. God brought judgment against them. The kingdom first was divided. Then the kingdom was captured. They were taken into captivity. They were spread throughout the whole world. And even when they were allowed to return, they returned only partially, and still they came back. Continues, Moses continues in verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of the ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers if you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law. If you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Again, the promises laid out to Israel. If you disobeyed, judgments will come. But even notice the kind of new covenant language that he describes in verse 6. Again, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You're going to love me from the heart with your soul. You're going to love me from your inner being. And I'm going to bring restoration. Now, verses 11 through 14, the section that Paul grabs that was the context setting up then paul says this or grabs this from moses for this commandment which i command you today is not too difficult for you nor is it out of reach it is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and to make us hear it that we may observe it Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. Now God is ministering to Israel here. Well before their history is going to unfold, he has been laying out, gospel testimony of what he is going to do. And this sets the context for us by which Paul grabs this and expands on it. So now let's turn over to Romans chapter 10 and see how Paul takes this marvelous truth. So that promise would come. Israel's 
is going to rebel. Israel is going to be hostile. They're going to reject the law. They're going to head into then God's judgment. They're going to be scattered throughout all the nations. And yet God had a purpose to bring them back. He's going to cause them to come back and be restored. And he's going to cause them to come back and receive blessing and prosper. Paul picks up on this. And he builds it up here. And you remember, the context is important for us because of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 is Paul proving this. God is not done yet with his people Israel. And now, what is most significant about it, not only is he not done yet, but the very gospel that God is going to use to save us and redeem the Gentiles is the gospel that he's going to use to restore Israel and to bring them to a place of repentance and to fulfill all those promises that he had made to Israel from the past that he's going to cause them to return and he's going to cause them to love from their heart and love with their whole soul and he's going to prosper them and he's going to bring the judgment on the other nations. Paul drills down then. In verses 11 through 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 30, Paul brings out here in verses 6 through 8. In 6 through 8, Paul adds another little wrinkle to it. Notice again, 6, verse 8 says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? And then you have, probably in brackets, like in my translation here, you probably have in brackets this phrase, and this is Paul's commentary on it. That is to say, bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What Paul is pointing out here is the scriptures are not saying go on this marvelous journey to find salvation. Go in your own efforts into the heavens to find God or go into the depths of, of death and bring Christ up from the grave. It's not, the gospel is not sending us on a fool's journey. So it's absolutely impossible. The gospel cannot be pointing to self-righteousness, cannot be pointing to one's own personal efforts to redeem themselves, It cannot be pointing to one's own personal striving to earn themselves favor before God. So then what is it saying? How do we attain righteousness? Well, that's what Paul's going to defend here from verses 8 through 10. And what I want to demonstrate for you in this passage are, well, I'll give you four qualities. There are three from 8 to 10, and I'll give you an extra one to set up next week. But four qualities of the gospel, four qualities of this marvelous message that God is going to use, not only to redeem us, the church, the age of the Gentiles, but it's this exact same message that he is going to use to restore Israel back to himself and to fulfill his covenant promises. First profound truth of the gospel is this that the gospel is accessible. It is accessible. Notice verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The word is accessible. It is near us. 
The emphasis there, near. It isn't something far off. It is something close to us. It is near. It is understandable. It is plain. It is around us. The message in which we are proclaiming is not a message that is something mystical and away hidden. It is something that is near and close to us. I was struck by this just this weekend as, uh, as an individual asked me when I was at the park, why aren't you a Buddhist? And I said, well, besides the fact I don't want to come back, come back as a butterfly, uh, there are other reasons and more important reasons why I'm not a Buddhist. And one and most important is this. It doesn't offer forgiveness. There is no forgiveness in any other religion than in Christ. Only in Christ is there pardon from sin. Every other religion is either pardon earned by cooperating with God or trying to please God, or no forgiveness at all, just hoping that it's all going to work out. Only in Christ is there forgiveness of sins. The gospel is plain. It's accessible. It is accessible enough that the youngest child can hear it and explain it. And yet at the same time, it is so profoundly rich that the most astute academic can be profoundly dumbfounded by it. It is marvelously and wonderfully accessible. That's what Paul quotes here when he quotes Deuteronomy 30 verse 11 What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. First emphasis is that it is close and it is near and it's around us. And just think how how profoundly rich God is towards us today. I just look at the Bible, for example, still one of the most popularly sold books in all the world, regularly accessible so that it's easy at any time to find access to the scriptures and to the message. But of course, you have preachers who are regularly preaching the gospel. You have teachers who are regularly ministering the gospel. You have faithful servants of God regularly going out and evangelizing and preaching the gospel. You've seen the gospel in newspaper articles. You've seen the gospel on TV, books, movies, etc. It is near and around and evident all the time. The gospel message, again, the message of faith in Christ, has been proclaimed by many, and it is marvelously and wonderfully accessible. You cannot run into it. You cannot escape it. It's not a message like the Masons who hide their message that you have to come into their group and move up their ranks to find more secret insights. This isn't the message like the Gnostic knowledge where you're trying to find the next expression or knowledge of truth. It's not constantly morphing. It's not a message that's constantly changing for the seasons. It's the same message that we have been preaching from the time of the apostles. It's accessible, unchanging, clear. And it's not some kind of fanciful message like the Greek gods. Imagining God more like man and trying to change God into our image. No, this message, again, is profoundly clear, profoundly rich, understandable, relatable, clear for the heart of man. And you think about even our culture today, you think about the world we live in, how often the gospel is preached. You know, like every Christmas, 
the gospel is preached. Every Easter, the gospel is preached. Every time we take communion, the gospel is preached. And there's regular emphasis on the gospel. It is accessible. It is near to us. So that no one is with excuse. No one has an excuse to be able to say, well, I didn't know. I didn't hear it. No, it is near to us. It's near in proximity in that it's around, but there's more to this nearness, and it comes into verse 9. Because in verse 9, it says, that if you confess with your mouth. Verse 9 starts actually with a haughty clause. It means it's an explanation. It's a conjunction that's explaining So that verse 9 explains verse 8, explains how it is near. And it is this, it is near to us in that it it saves. It is effective to accomplish its work. Again, contrast verse 6, or or, yeah, verse 8 with verse 6 and 7. The gospel we have is near. We don't have to go search for it, heading to the heights of heaven so as to bring Christ down or into the depths of the grave as to bring Christ up. It isn't something far off, unimaginable. It's something near and close to us and able to save. It is accessible. Secondly, not only is it accessible, it is also simple. It is profoundly simple. Notice verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I love the absolute simplicity of this statement. So many times in my own spiritual life, I remember just as a young man struggling with the gospel and just have to go back to this very passage right here. It is as simple as this. Confess with your mouth Jesus as the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Here's the struggle for the heart, the self-righteous heart. It can't be that easy. I mean, do you know the sin I just did? Do you know how bad I was? Do you know how ugly my heart is? It has to be more complex than that. It can't be just as simple as confess and believe because that transgression was really bad. And yet, verse 9 is very plain. Confess. The word confess, hamalageo, means to say the same thing as. This is what we do when we pray in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. It says, if we confess our sins, same word, homologo, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all our transgressions. To confess is to say the same thing as. To confess is to align our words with God's words, our assessment with God's assessment. Now notice, particularly verse 9, where he says we are to confess Jesus as Lord. I mean, there are all kinds of titles that we could have gone to for Jesus Christ here. We could have called him Redeemer. We could have called him Savior. We could have called him the Lamb of God. We could have called him the Son of God. All of those things would be accurate titles. Paul picks one. He says, Lord. He is Lord. And again, this confession isn't like a magic spell here. It's like, well, if I can, get, if I can just get someone to say these words, then we have got him in. 
Say the magic words, read this phrase, you're in. You've said the words, Jesus is Lord, you've got it. It's not the idea here. Hamalageo is, I am aligning myself with what God says. God says that Jesus is Lord. I am affirming, here is what Christ is. He is my Lord. Lord and Savior. That's the idea here. One who confesses, recognizes the person of Jesus Christ for who he is. Lord, Master, Ruler, Sovereign, all of these emphasize the title of Christ. He is the one who has the authority to direct my life because I have believed upon him. He is Lord. To confess is then to acknowledge to say what God says about him, I acknowledge his authority, his rule, his right to govern and direct. That is a child of God. child of God acknowledges the authority of Jesus Christ, acknowledges that we are his servants, acknowledge that we are in submission to him. It is a confession and an acknowledgement of what Christ is. He is Lord and Master. The one who is, again, who redeemed us, yes, but now directs us and guides us. This is, again, the simplicity of the gospel. Believer, again, confesses what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Secondly, he doesn't just confess, it says also, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's not just the acknowledgement of the person of Christ, but it is also the acknowledgement of the work of Christ. What has he accomplished? So many have argued, well, is it really necessary to defend the resurrection of Christ? So really necessary to defend that, especially when day and age when it just doesn't fit in the scientific mind. I mean, we can't go out and uh, reproduce the resurrection. So scientifically, we can't prove it. We can't reproduce it. So there must be no ability for there actually to be a resurrection. And, you know, we don't want to look bad in the academic world so we can toss it aside. Well, not exactly. Turn back to chapter 1. Because not only must we proclaim the resurrection, it is absolutely essential to the gospel, and it's essential to the work of Christ. Paul begins this whole book with this statement. Verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he's talking about, again, his calling to ministry and what he's charged to do as an apostle is to preach this gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So he's saying, look, I've come. I'm preaching this gospel. This gospel is consistent with the testimony of the prophets. And it's about, verse 3, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now verse 4 who was declared the Son of God with power, notice, by the resurrection from the dead. Is the resurrection essential? Absolutely, because of the resurrection, Jesus Christ is proven to be the Son of God. No resurrection, no proof that he is the Son, no resurrection, he's no different than David Koresh, dead in the grave. 
But with the resurrection, he is the very Son of God. God, very God. We believe upon Christ and the marvelous work that he has accomplished. Uh, Turn over to Philippians 2, because I just love Paul's description of the work of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, describing Christ's work. Because there is, again, probably the best description of the work of Christ is that of humility. And it's evident here in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. As I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayers for you. Yes. Verse 3. Yeah, Philippians chapter 2. Sorry, I was reading chapter 1. Chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father." The glories of Christ, the evidence of Christ in his life as he came, willingly laying down his life. Though deserving all the glories of heaven, though leaving behind all the riches that he would receive in heaven, he took on the form of man. Taking on all the limitations of human flesh, he lived under the law and then laid down his life. This work of Christ demonstrated in this perfect obedience for us is, again, what redeems us. Turn back to Romans chapter 10. And the emphasis here, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you believe what the scriptures say about the work of Christ. You believe what he has accomplished. I think about belief here. What is saving faith? What does it mean to believe? We have emphasized this before. There are three components to genuine saving faith, known in the Latin terms as noticia, ascensus, fiducia. The idea, noticia, is the idea of knowledge. You, you understand, you know the facts, you know the details. You know that Christ, again, born of the Virgin Mary, lived, lived the life on earth uh, as a man. He had brothers and sisters. He, he fulfilled all righteousness. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He called his disciples to him. He delivered to them the message. He taught them and trained them. He was then rejected by his own people, hostilely opposed, then sent to the grave by his own people. You know those facts. That's Natitia. 
senses. You affirm the truth of those facts. You affirm the truth of the historicity of Christ. You affirm what the Bible says is true and reliable. That's a census. And then, fiducia, there is the bending of your will to those truths, to that knowledge. I could illustrate it like this. Let's imagine an airplane. You can have the knowledge that an airplane is able to fly. You can understand the engineering. You can understand the concept of lift created as as air moves over the wing and creates high pressures and low pressures and creates a lift. And you can understand all the engineering aspects to that uh, capability. And you can understand the power of an engine and what it could produce and the, the kind of thrusts and all of that. And you can say, all right, yes, from a knowledge standpoint, I believe the engineering is possible to produce an airplane that would be able to carry passengers. And I even believe a census, I affirm the engineering. I affirm the truth. It is possible A fiducia is the bending of your will to that knowledge and understanding. You get on that plane, buckle yourself in, and go for the ride. Now you have saving faith, knowledge, assent, and the bending of the will. To one who then believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who believes that God raised him from the dead, knows those facts, affirms they are true, and then yields his will to the truthfulness of that message. It says, then, if you confess and you believe, you will be saved. It is that simple. It isn't, again, a mystical journey. It isn't some kind of uh, work that you're going to now spend the rest of your life trying to perform enough good deeds to qualify you to be received into heaven. This isn't kind of like a when you go to one of those um, places where they're going to sell you a condo for the year, it's like, well, here, it's really easy. Just sign up this, and then the rest of your life, you are now indebted for forever to try to pay it off. No, this is what is promised is what you receive, that you are saved by grace through faith alone. That is what's promised. That is what's received. This leads us to the third quality of the gospel, and that it's effective. It is effective. It's accessible, meaning it is both near and it is able to save, so it's accessible. Salvation is attainable. It is also simple. It's not complex or profound. And then thirdly, it is effective, both at the end of verse 9 and through verse 10. Verse, end of verse 9, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It is effective, is able to save, is able to make a man righteous, is able to bring a man into salvation, into eternal life. Yeah, notice verse 10, where the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Some argued about the order. Is there an order to the events? Do we have to confess first and then believe? Do we have to believe first and then confess? Seems to be an order difference between this. I think Paul is just emphasizing the two aspects. Some have argued that verse 9 is Paul taking the outline from Deuteronomy verse 30, and then verse, or chapter 30, verse 11, 
And then verse 10 is Paul explaining theologically the order of events. Whatever the case, I'm saying both of these things are part and parcel of saving faith. I think the emphasis here is on the entire transformation of the life, the inner man and the outer man. Notice again from verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, what's that? Your outer man. And believe with your heart, what's that? The inner man. Verse 10, for with the heart, inner man, a person believes resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, outer man, he confesses. The gospel is the effect of the entire being of the person, inner man and outer man, all given over to faith in Christ. It's from within, I believe. From within, I've yielded my heart and mind. And from without, I've confessed, I've acknowledged. Somebody who says, well, my faith is privately, it's all mine by myself. You don't have then the genuine saving faith because you must proclaim it. And the one who's only proclaiming, but their inner heart, their inner man isn't changed. You don't have saving faith either because God changes the entire being, inner and outer man. From the heart to the lips. From the inner man to the outer man. It is effective to save. The gospel is effective to transform. So that God is able to do his good work through this confession and faith in Christ. Which leads us to the last truth. And this is just kind of set up for next week. And it's verse 11. The gospel is indiscriminate. It is indiscriminate. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It is for all. It's not for a particular class of people. It's not for a particular gender. It's not for a particular race. It's not for a particular nation. It's not for a particular academic group. It's not for a particular social economic status. It's not for a particular time period. It is for whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It is indiscriminate. Spread to all the nations, to all to hear, for all to receive. So that in this gospel, then, we see the power of God on display. Contrast that with the self righteous, self righteous person striving to earn favor with God, the self righteous person trying to make their life line up, the self righteous per- person trying with all their effort to attain a righteousness, even going to the point of changing God's standard so that they would be acceptable, and then proud in that effort, only finding themselves falling infinitely short. Contrast that with God's simple message. It is there, as ever before you. It is around you and near. You don't have to go somewhere else. I mean, how many testimonies have we heard when somebody at the complete end of themselves in some hotel somewhere opens up a drawer, sees a Bible, picks it up, reads, and believes. It's near. Salvation is near, and it's simple. Not a complex story, not some mystical information that only some academic elite understands. I mean, think about how many times you try to have a conversation with an academic person and all they give you is big words and confusing grammar. What are you trying to say? No, it is simple, it is plain, 
sort of relatable and understandable that again as a child can hear it and believe. And what I love about again the simplicity of the gospel when you say one is a message simple when it is absolutely clear. When you know clearly what is being said. It is that simple because it is clear and effective. As the text emphasizes, it is able to save. It is able to make one righteous. It is able to accomplish what God intended for it to accomplish. And it is offered to all. Not running around trying to find God's secret elect. Not trying to find out some secret group. It is available to all. It's indiscriminate. We indiscriminately preach it and proclaim it to all. And then next week when we come back, we'll see the last element from verse 11 through verse 13. We see the effectiveness of the gospel is anchored in Jesus Christ, what he will accomplish. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the riches and the power of your work. For indeed, when we would be tempted to be self-reliant and we would be tempted to look upon our own efforts and abilities and, and try to earn favor with you, because of the guilt we've experienced and because of your demands and your promises, we might be tempted to believe that we could earn some kind of favor, wanting to be restored. But we would only recognize we cannot do it. And so we're so thankful to turn to Christ and throw ourselves upon him, trust ourselves to a loving Savior who has rescued us from the wrath to come. So that now our life is freely given over to you, not to earn something, but to, to show you our love and gratitude for all that you've accomplished. For indeed, we rejoice in the work of the Son And so we pray that we would be bold ambassadors, confident in the clarity of your word, confident in the simplicity of this message, confident in the ability for all to hear and understand. And even though the hardened heart opposes the truth and rejects it because it's plainly made known, we rejoice that we haven't rejected, that we have believed we ask, Father, that may the simplicity and clarity of this message never become dull to us, but always be renewed as exciting and fresh. For indeed, we are anticipating that day when our faith will become sights and all the rewards and promises which you have made known will be evident to us. Till such time, give us a renewed vigor and energy to proclaim these truths minister to our families and friends, to encourage those around us who are in hostile opposition, to not back away and be timid with the gospel, but to be bold at all times, but to demonstrate a kind of loving humility that our Lord demonstrated because we're not trusting in ourselves and our resources. We are yielding in faith to all that you are doing. And we thank you for the riches of your truth as it ministers to us this morning. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.